This is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. We're starting the fifth chapter of the first part of the Mora Nevuchim, and let's just get our bearings. In chapter four, what the Rambam was concerning himself with was trying to remove any kind of language that would assign corporeality or physical status to Hashem in any way. And so he dedicated himself to look at all of the times when prophets are described as seeing God. And of course, when you see something, it implies that that thing that you're seeing has some kind of physical feature. So the Rambam had said that no, that it does, the, the words for seeing, which we use three verbs for seeing in the last chapter, ri'iyah, um, habata, and chazon, those have dual meanings because you can see something with your physical eyes, but you can also see something through your intellect. You can perceive something or have a vision <coughs> internally of something and imagine something, but it's not something physical or real. Now, the Rambam is going to continue that discussion by discussing two sections of the Chumash where there is a very, very um, graphic description of seeing God. And here he has to actually go, he feels he has to go into a little bit more detail to try and explain what that seeing actually is, that habata. Okay, so what I'd like to do is read the first few sentences of the, of the of this chapter where he invokes a statement that's made by Aristotle. And so the, the first sentences are, when the chief of the philosophers, and this is the way that the Rambam refers to Aristotle, he is the biggest, he's the big kahuna of, Aristotle, of the philosophers. And the Rambam has the greatest admiration of philosophical thinkers for Aristotle. When he began to investigate very obscure matters and to attempt a proof concerning them, he excused himself by making a statement the meaning of which was as follows. Now, why do I need to excuse myself if I'm making a, if I'm putting forth a theory on philosophy? Well, as the reason is, you'll see in just a moment what Aristotle was discussing. I want to spend just a few moments on that. A student of his books should not, because of the subject of these researches, ascribe to him effrontery, which he, what he means to say is some kind of azuspanim or chutzpah, nor should he ascribe to him temerity, which the, in Hebrew they say is gasut, or a certain type of arrogance, ego, and an excess of haste to speak of matters of which he has no knowledge. But rather he should ascribe to him the desire and the endeavor to acquire and achieve, and achieve true beliefs to the extent to which this is in the power of man. In the same way, we say that man should not hasten too much to accede to this great and sublime matter at the first try, 
without having made his knowledge undergo training in the sciences and the different kinds of knowledge, having truly improved his character, and having extinguished the desires and cravings engendered in him by his imagination. When, however, he has achieved an acquired knowledge of true and certain premises, and has achieved knowledge of the rules of logic and inference and of the various ways of preserving himself from errors of the mind, he should then engage in the investigation of this subject. When doing this, he should not make categoric affirmations in favor of the first opinion that occurs to him, and should not from the outset strain and impel his thoughts toward the apprehension of the deity. He rather should feel awe and refrain and hold back until he gradually elevates himself. Adkan, the Hakdama of the Rambam to this chapter. All of this was introductory material to explain the subject material of the description of Moshe first encountering the divine at the story of the burning bush. But what I find fascinating is the way that he is invoking Aristotle to support this idea. In other words, what essentially Aristotle has said, and I want to take a look at that in just a moment, is that you have to have a certain um, awe and a certain sense of humility before you engage on certain kinds of speculation where there is absolutely no way that you will be able to approach the material as it truly is. And that's really how Aristotle devoted his life, uh, what he devoted his life to, which was the speculation of matters of reality that there did not exist in his time the tools with which to properly ascertain what is truth. Aristotle lives at a time where, which is pre-science, where man does not yet have the laboratory, does not yet have the telescope, does not yet have the microscope, does not have the adequate tools to be able to describe the world around him with any level of accuracy. How then are we able to uh, put forth our, our conception of ideas of the things that we perceive around us through theory, through speculation. That's where philosophy comes in. That's why there's no word, the word philosophy and science are really synonymous. What we call scientific method did not exist until somewhere around the 17th century where man had the tools with which to gauge things in the laboratory. But before then, it was purely philosophy where you speculate on the reality of things. And because, and that's why the division that we place between physics, you know, or what we call or real science or physical science, natural science, and metaphysics, it's, it's a division that for us is extremely uh, a broad division. But for Aristotle, it was a very narrow division. It's two, it's two disciplines of the same kind of speculation. Now, what, what we're going to see in Aristotle in just a minute, it's really quite, fascin it's quite fascinating, and there's a certain irony in this, in this invocation of Aristotle over here, is that what the Rambam is suggesting is, is that just as Aristotle uh, was able to excuse himself for delving into matters which are extremely deep and mysterious, and yet he provided an introduction by saying, I'm not being chutzpahdik by delving into these issues. I'm not being arrogant by delving into these issues. I take this very, very seriously, and I am proceeding cautiously. 
is essentially what Aristotle was saying. In the same vein, any person who encounters something mysterious, especially when we deal with the divine, would, would only do what is, um, what is prudent and would proceed with extreme caution. And this is the way we are introduced to Moshe Rabbeinu at the event of the burning bush, is that he is proceeding and entering into an encounter with the divine with tremendous caution. Now, I want us to take a look very briefly, not, we're not going to take a long time, and take a look at what Aristotle actually was referring to. What Aristotle was referring to is in his work called On the Heavens, which if you're really interested, you can find it online. I have the link for you in the handout. Uh, I will post, I'm sorry for not having done so earlier, but I will post the handout on our Facebook group, Shear in Morinavuchim. Uh, I'll post that later today, Belinetter. And the um, Aristotle writes as follows. This is in Book 2, Part 12. There are two difficulties which may very reasonably here be raised, of which we must now attempt to state the probable solution. For we regard, and this is what, this is what the Rambam is quoting, for we regard the zeal of one whose thirst after philosophy leads him to accept even slight indications where it is very difficult to see one's way as a, as a proof rather of modesty than of overconfidence. What Aristotle is suggesting is, is that there are many instances when we try to attain the truth of a matter, but we have so little to go on that we can only conjecture as to what the explanation of this mystery is. But don't ascribe to us uh, arrogance or chutzpah because we're doing it, but rather it is modesty. In other words, we approach this with modesty, and therefore, even though you think that my putting forth a theory to explain what I'm about to explain is chutzpah, I don't mean to be chutzpahdik at all. Now, the irony here is, what is Aristotle's question? He has two questions regarding the motion of the stars, which to him are counterintuitive. Now, the reason why for Aristotle the motion of the stars is counterintuitive is because he has a preconceived notion of how the stars move. If you recall in our introduction, we explained that um, a geocentric view of the universe with, the, uh, with using a Ptolemaic planetary system, which exists in the ancient and medieval world all the way up until Galileo and Copernicus, has to do with the fact that the Earth is in the center and that all of these celestial bodies revolve around the Earth. But more than that is that the method of motion is that they are embedded in transparent spheres that are constantly turning. And there are concentric spheres. The outermost sphere is closest to what Aristotle called the prime mover, the mover of all motion. Now, if the outermost sphere is closest to the prime mover, and the closer you get to our planet Earth, you are further away from the source of moving, of motion, then where would you expect to find the greatest amount of motion? In the innermost sphere or in the outermost sphere? You would expect to find greater motion the closer you get to the prime mover. And yet, says Aristotle, when we look at the stars or the celestial bodies that are closer to us, we see more motion 
And when we look at the celestial bodies that are farther from us, the stars in the, in the outer spheres, we see less motion. And why is that? Now, of course, if you and I were to consider this question, we would say, well, what kind of question is that? Is the question is predicated on what? How, how, how the orbiting. How, how it's based on bad science, right? Or it's based on ancient science, which is which we today know uh, is not the way that celestial bodies move. They don't. The reason why things seem to move more, the, the closer they are to us, has to do with these. It has to do with space, it has to do with per the perception of moving bodies that they seem to move more the closer they are to us. It has to do with the perception of us vis-a-vis -vis the distance that we are away from these things. The point is, how, we're not going to get into a scientific discussion now, the point is, is that the irony of the Rambam invoking Aristotle where he's appropriately citing Aristotle to say that you should know that Aristotle many times had to delve into matters that he had no way of explaining based on experimentation and being able to get up close to the subject material and identify the reason for it. So he had to speculate, he had to conjecture. And yet he did so with great modesty and great caution. And so, and we'll just, we're going to skip that big middle paragraph of Aristotle, go to the last part. He says, on these questions I say, it is well that we should seek to increase our understanding, though we have but little to go upon, and are placed at so great a distance from the facts in question. Nevertheless, there are certain principles on which, if we base our consideration, we shall not find this difficulty by any means insoluble or insolvable. Okay, in other words, we should be able to figure this out, says Aristotle, but we have to proceed cautiously. Even because we are so far away, it is so mysterious to us, these kinds of, of quandaries, these kinds of dilemmas. Now, if that's, what Arist if that's what the Rambam is using to set up, so for the Rambam, there's no irony here because the Rambam feels that Aristotle got it totally right when discussing this matter of how the celestial bodies move and why they seem to move faster the closer they are to us and why this was an appropriate question to ask. But for us looking at it in the 21st century, the irony is that when it comes to issues of speculation, we have to bear in mind that the Rambam is relying on the philosophy of his time to help him explain certain very, very deep mysteries that are contained within Tanakh about Hashem himself. And if it were to be that at some time later in history we were to discover something new about Hashem, about his universe, about anything having to do with Torah that went against, that contravenes something that the Rambam writes, well, we do that with Aristotle. And we have to appreciate the fact that this is not a deprecation of Aristotle if we discover something that in science that goes against what Aristotle had originally said. Similarly, if we discover through whatever means that we have available to us something that the Rambam writes in Morinavuchim that seems for whatever reason unsettling or inconsistent with other things that we have 
that other Meforshim have written since the Rambam, that's also okay. That's also okay because he is basing himself on the type of speculation that is appropriate for the time in which he lives. And if therefore we discover or we come up with something different, this is not, uh, doesn't destroy the Rambam. He's clearly acknowledging that he is using the same type of methodology of inquiry and speculation that Aristotle used. Now, let's get back to our material. Our material is discussing Moshe Rabbeinu's first encounter with the divine. And here I want us to be very clear that the Meforshim discuss this, including the Rambam himself. I believe he discusses it later on. Um, but uh, many Meforshim point out that, and the Ramchal makes a point of saying this, that prophets go through various levels of sophistication in their lifetime uh, regarding their encounter with the Ribona Shalom. In other words, the very first time that we see Moshe encountering the divine is not the same Moshe Rabbeinu that we read about in Bamidbar or Devarim in Numbers or Deuteronomy. The Moshe Rabbeinu that we encounter towards the end of his life is already a, the greatest prophet of all time, has the, most, the greatest clarity of vision of communication with Hashem than any other human being who has ever lived before or after him. But that was not the Moshe Rabbeinu that we are reading about when we first discover him encountering the divine at the burning bush, nor would we expect that. But it's important for us to remind ourselves that Moshe Rabbeinu has to go through certain iterations of experience and practice before he reaches the level of the Moshe Rabbeinu that we know and love as the giver of the Torah. Okay, And so this is the description that the Rambam wants to point out to us. It is in this sense that it is said, and Moshe hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. We're back in the text. And th this is uh, in, your, in, your in your handshake, uh, in your handout, the, the sheet that I gave you. Perik Gimel Pasuk Vav of Sefer Shemos. It says, Vayaster Moshe Panav. Moshe hid his face. Kiarei mehabit elho elokim. Because he was scared of beholding Hashem. Now this, again, for the Rambam, he, he's continuing this discussion of what is Moshe actually looking at? Well, he's not looking at God himself because God has no physical form. So what, what is he hiding his face from? Well, you could say that he realizes that he is looking at a burning bush, which in some way is a representation of Hashem. And therefore, he wants to hide his face because he is fearful of looking even at that representation. Okay. This being an additional meaning of the verse over and above its external meaning that indicates that he hid his face because of his being afraid to look upon the light manifesting itself and not that the deity who is greatly exalted above every deficiency can be apprehended by the eyes. So he says the simple pshat, the direct, most simple, obvious explanation is that there's some kind of very powerful light that Moshe realizes is a representation of the divine and he is scared of that on a physical level, and he hides his face from it. But the deeper meaning of what it means that Moshe hides his face because he is afraid to encounter the divine is the very same kind of humility that Aristotle described in encountering 
the, specu the speculation of trying to explain the mysteries of the universe. I feel so insignificant trying to understand something which is so distant from me that I acknowledge is so beyond uh, wise leaders of the Jewish people. And they are allowed to approach the mountain at a place which is even closer to the divine than the rest of the, the, than the, rest of the people. The Torah therefore says in verse 10, Vayiru eight Eloke Yisrael. They saw the God of Israel. Vitachat raglav, and underneath his feet, the feet of the divine, kemaase livnata sapir, was like the work of a certain kind of brickwork called the sapir brickwork, ucheetsem hashamayim latohar, and it was like the essence of the heavens in its purity. Now, that's a very cryptic description of what is underneath God's feet, as it were. This is so anthropomorphic that it really it begs the Rambam to say that, you know, to explain that it cannot be a literal description of what they're actually seeing of the divine. Now, as far as the Atzilim, which is translated sometimes as the princes, or the chosen ones, or the ones who had been emanated upon, is the way some of the commentaries explain. He did not send forth his hand, which sounds like that God is not in any way punishing them. That's what shlichut yad means, sending forth his hand in, in, in punishment. Vayechezu et ha'elokim, they gazed upon God, vayochelu vayishtu, and they ate and they drank. Now, what this passage means, once again, is extremely, extremely cryptic. So, the, the Rambam has to now go about explaining what it is all about. So, in order for us to uh, properly explain this, we're going to have to explain, as the Rambam is going to in the, next, in the next paragraph, that this too is referring to the attitude that the people take when they are preparing to encounter the divine. And here we're going to create a contrast. Whereas by Moshe Rabbeinu, he hides his face when he first has his encounter because he's, he approaches the, the, the intellectual material of encountering the divine or speculating about the divine in a very humble way. The contrast is that these elders at Mount Sinai did not take that approach of humility. And they were overbrazen and they were eventually therefore punished for having the wrong attitude. And part of the repercussions of not having the proper attitude when encountering the divine is that you tend to misunderstand your encounter to the point where you combine your physical senses with your intellectual encounter with the divine so that you somehow perceive some kind of physical manifestation of the divine. That's the approach that the Rambam is going to take about this whole story. And as a result, the Rambam's whole view of this story which is Rashi, by the way, as well, if you take a look at Rashi's commentary, which all of this we're going to spend next time doing, um, you'll see that this is a criminal act that these elders have committed for which they have to pay the supreme price. They have to forfeit their lives. And this is ultimately why Nadav and Avihu end up dying in the Parsha that we just read on Shabbos, Parshat Shemini. Now, this is not 
agreed upon by all the commentaries, because when you look at this passage, you don't automatically see that there was something sinful committed. But the Rambam feels that such a physical attribution to God cannot go unpunished. And therefore, it because again, the Rambam is so concerned about distancing any level of corporeality from Hashem, he feels compelled to explain it this way. So we're going to stop here. We'll continue this discussion, Bezrat Hashem, next time. I just want to make a quick announcement that we will not be having any classes until after Pesach, until after Passover, um, and that'll be in about three weeks, uh, maybe three or three to four weeks from now. We'll let you know when we're going to resume. Just a lot of starting, stuff. Starting next week, we won't have any. There will not, this is our last class oh, before. This, last this was our last class before Pesach, okay. so we will resume after after Pesach, and we'll keep you posted. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.